Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. First Corinthians, first Corinthians. Last week we were in first Corinthians chapter eight. This week we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Last week when we were together, we took time uh, to be reminded that our chief concern in ministry and life must be charity and the edifying of the body of Christ. We talked about this idea that though we might, in our own knowledge and understanding of the Lord, feel liberty or at liberty to do certain things with our life and make decisions for ourselves that seem appropriate uh, according to our desires or our plan, That it's our responsibility as believers to consider other people and their edifying greater than our own achievements and what we believe to be profitable for ourselves, right? That's preferring others over ourselves, especially those that are weaker in the faith. So we talked about that. Now, for this reason, um, our love will often bridle our personal liberties, okay? So our being prone to loving other people will often affect the way that we make decisions, uh, the way that we behave ourselves around other people, and that's the way it should work. That's not, I think one of the things about this generation of people uh, is that we really value authenticity to the point that many times we're willing to let the thing that feels authentic to us usurp uh, our relationship with other people. It's you know, I'm going to do me, you do you, and uh, if you don't like what I'm doing, well, then that's, that's your problem. And that's a serious issue in the church. And I think, I, I believe that there's much greater reward, both in your heart and in your eternity, if you as a mature believer decide that you're going to, you're going to submit your life to edifying other people, and that you're going to put other people over yourself and, and, and consider them even greater Then you consider yourself. Not that you should neglect yourself, not that you should hate yourself, not that you should live as a stoic of some sort, slave to everybody around you, but you are a slave to Christ and you are a servant to Christ. And Christ, though there were certain things that he was unwilling to hedge on, lived a life that was absolutely submitted to the people that he loved. Does that make sense? And that requires balance and that requires the work of the Holy Spirit in you. But As we're going to learn today, the more concerned we are for our personal well-being and designing a pleasurable life for ourselves, the less capacity we actually have for loving other people and loving God's mission. Okay, so the more you you function in pursuit of your own endeavors, the more you design your life out in such a way that brings you pleasure and comfort, the less capacity you actually have to be concerned with, with other people in your life, right? The, 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 you have less space for love, honestly. And so we're going to look at that a little bit today. Now, as we, return our, uh, as we turn our attention this week to chapter 9, Paul is going to use himself as an example of what it looks like to put the mission over our personal desires, okay? How to put the mission over our personal desires, And as we get started, I want to talk a little bit about money. This is a money sermon. I don't don't do this often. Okay? This may be be my first money-oriented sermon ever in Kaya as a a pastor. So I want to warn you in advance. I know that there's pastors out there. I know it's the ongoing joke. There's pastors out there that are preaching on this subject every week. Okay? That's not my jam. We do what's called expository preaching, which means that we walk verse by verse through the scripture and you address topics and issues, even if they're inconvenient, when they pop up in the text. And this is where we're at in the text, and so this is what we're going to do. But we're going to talk about money today, and we're going to talk about money as it motivates and drives the way we think in our country. So the way our economy is built encourages people to work hard in order to earn what they have. Amen? That's how, that's how capitalism and free market works. If you're willing to work hard, then you can have things. 
That's, that's good. I, I believe personally that that's the way that it should be. The alternatives, I don't think, are as good. But because of that, we often believe that the things that we have are really, really important because we earn them. You know what I mean? And we live in a country where politics and ideology are heavily influenced by our economics and our view of finance. Okay, there's lots of varying views. Okay, I'm not going to get into all that today. If you have questions, you can talk to one of the many people who are, deal with finance and economics in this class. Okay, you, if you've got f- money problems, let me just say this. Our counseling ministry at MBT offers financial counseling. So you can sign up for financial counseling. You can have someone sit down with you, walk through your budget, and figure out how you can do a better job with your money. But a lot of us, even the way that we vote, surrounds our perspective of economics and money. We live in a country where we have access to some of the greatest technology, entertainment, and fashions the world has to offer. Okay? Now, last one, fashions. That's real important. Um, our obsession with money, though, it's infiltrated the church. Have you, do you not see that? It's infiltrated the church in the way that the church thinks. And many times, the church functions more like some sort of brand that's supposed to be marketed and some sort of business that's supposed to be propagated than it does as the body of Christ the way the New Testament lays it out. Now, evidence number one of that, in my perspective, is that there are more people, more Christians, who are concerned with what Dave Ramsey has to say than what the Bible has to say. There are, there are people who are more religious in terms of catching the Dave Ramsey show on whatever, is it on Caleb now? I don't On one of the many Christian radio stations hearing what he has to say about their money than they are actually about spending time in the Word. Now, some of you saw this video of the, uh, the pastor from Kansas City the last week or so that went viral. Did you all see this? Yes, painful, isn't it? There's a, a disgusting, Eric said. Yes, amen, brother. But this is, this is only a glimpse of what goes on in churches probably all over the world. But, so this pastor here, local, one of the local churches, this, this video went viral like worldwide, by the way. This dude is in the pulpit, and he is berating his congregation. And he is telling them that they have failed to provide for him uh, the, the watch that he wanted that he was hoping for. I don't even know the brand. I had to look up the brand. I don't remember. Movado. Yeah, Movado. He wanted a Movado watch. And they failed to provide him with the watch that was, I guess, on his pastor wish list, if there's such a thing. And, the, and, and he, he made a point to point out that he wasn't driving a fancy enough car. And he went, out, he went down the list of the ways in which they were doing him wrong because, because uh, they weren't providing him with these things, okay? So that's a problem, right? And the world sees that as a problem. That's why the video went viral, because they see that it's jacked. In New York City just recently, there was a pastor that was in the pulpit. There's a video of this too. This is the beauty about all the churches being connected to the internet now. Like, you're not getting away with anything. (laughs) So this dude's in the pulpit. He's preaching, and Someone comes in and robs this cat in the middle of the, of the service, comes in with a gun and takes all of his jewelry and his wife's jewelry. This dude has got gold all over. You know how much, so the, the estimate came in. It was he and his wife were wearing $1 million worth of jewelry on a Sunday morning at their church. <laughs> I, I think, I think something's not right. S- something, something is strange here. See, the leaders in Christ's church have become so distracted by materialism and temporal things that it's produced a spirit of suspicion in the body of Christ. We're suspicious of our pastors. And even worse, it's produced a generation of Christians who like their leaders have become more concerned with what they have than they are concerned about the mission and how they're supposed to give their lives a living sacrifice for the work that Christ has given them to. See, they're like their pastors and like their leaders are more concerned with the security and comforts of having things 
than they are concerned with the fact that there are people literally 100 yards from us right this moment who are walking down the street whose eternal destiny is hell. Something is not right. Something's broken in the way that we see, we see the church. And many of us don't know it, but we are more motivated by the American dream than we are the Great Commission. And if God called you, if he called you out and he called you to go to the foreign field, and he called you to go church planting and to give up everything you have, would you even be willing to sell off the stuff that you have or give it away in order to do the thing that God's asked you to do? That's, that's, that's a big question, isn't it? Would you be willing to quit your job that you worked so hard to get? Would you, would you be willing to pack up and move to do the thing that God has called you to? Would you be willing to do that? Or are you so concerned with the comforts and the insulation that you've created and the little dream that you're building out that you have to say no to God? See, the danger for all of us is that we become so obsessed with our physical reality and position that we forget that we have a spiritual reality and a mission that God's called us to. So this week's question is very similar to last week's question. It builds on last week's question. Last week's question was, do I have the will to resist my wants for the sake of others? That was last week's question. This week's question is, do my wants, do my personal wants, my securities, my liberties, my entertainment, my possessions, do they cloud my ability to see God's mission? That's our question. And today we're going to be talking about money, and so I just want to apologize to the visitors for that in advance. Come back next week. I don't anticipate talking about money. But I think I'm going to, it's going to be a bit of a surprise to you because what we actually learn and the, the conclusion of today's sermon is that it actually, we don't need anything. <laughs> Your leaders don't need anything. The only thing we need is the sustaining work of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what we need. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. Today's uh, sermon's called Generosity and Honor. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. I thank you for this great people. I thank you for the opportunity to worship you with them and to just cry out and just to hear the worship just get drowned out by the many voices of your saints turning their hearts towards you. Um, that's wonderful to me. Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, Lee Thurman Cheadle. I thank you for that baby. And uh, I thank you, Lord, for all of the fruit that you're giving us, both physical fruit uh, in terms of, of new life, uh, but also spiritual fruit in terms of new life and, and salvation and discipleship. We glorify your name. Lord, I pray that you would guide me and, and superintend me in the work of, of dividing this passage today, that I'd be able to speak plain, that people would know my heart, but Lord, more importantly, know your heart as it concerns these matters. Uh, Lord, I, I want and desire to lead this people well, so help me uh, to stay out of my way and let you do your thing. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, let's start with verse one of chapter nine. Paul says, am, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth the flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes, for our sakes no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing that we shall reap your carnal things? If, other th if others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? 
Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers of the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So let's start here by examining our authorities. Remember that Paul was responding, uh, sorry, was responsible for planting the church in Corinth some eight years previous to this letter. He, He was the one that was responsible for going to Corinth and evangelizing and discipling and establishing a work in that city. You guys remember that, right? And he spent a long time there, more, more time than he spent in a lot of other city, cities that he ministered to because he wanted to make sure that the church was strong and established. And so after he did that, after he did that work, he handed the work off to other leaders that they might oversee the body of Christ in Corinth. Now, per usual though, just like that we see this in, in Acts and we see this in, in other letters that Paul's written, Soon after Paul left the city of Corinth, false teachers swooped in and began, began sowing seeds of doubt in the young believers in that city. And they would make claims against Paul and against his apostleship and against his authority. And they would say things about Paul like, well, he's in, he's in it for the money. D- don't, you, don't you know that he's just here because he wants your money? And they would come in and they'd sow those seeds of doubt and they'd, they'd leave the church in a position where they had to make some serious decisions about what they thought about Paul. And so they were left in a position where they had to examine who he was. Now, Paul begins by defending the nature of his authority and his investment in verse one. He says, am I not an apostle? So that is part of the question. Am I not an apostle? I mean, has not God given me this position of apostleship? Am I not free? Have I, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? So Paul's admonishing, admonishing them because rather than submitting to biblical authority, they have allowed their hearts to become suspicious of Paul, both him and his motives. So these false teachers, they, they, they tempted the people to have impressions of Paul that were inaccurate And they ultimately served to undermine his position and his authority over the church. Now, in 2022 America, there's a spirit, a general spirit of rebellion in all of us, right? We live in a post-punk world, okay? Right? So we're like, what, third wave hip-hop, right? It's like music is such a wonderful reflection of the way that people think, and it influences us so deeply and in the undertone of some 30 years, of last 30 years of modern music, it's just sowing seeds of rebellion in our heart, right? And you can see even just in the way that people behave themselves, the way that they see their workplace, the way they see their bosses, there's a spirit of rebellion in our generation. But the funny thing about that is that we recognize that nothing gets done without authority structures. Like we're such hypocrites about it. We only act rebellious when we don't like what's going on. So we throw a fit and we act like a little rebel and we mount a rebellion. But we know that there's no business that's successful in our nation that doesn't have some sort of authority structure. Okay? There's owners, there's CEOs, there's CFOs, there's managers, there's regional managers, there's managers beneath them, there's people, you know, this is the way it works. Why? Why do all armies and militaries have authority structures? Because it works. Because authority actually works. And a fruitful people are going to recognize that there needs to be an authority structure in place so that people know what they're supposed to do. So they have accountability. Even in our own home, we understand that while God is the head of the family and the familial institution... Parents have been given the authority over their children for the nurture and, and their development, for their, for their best interest, for their fruitfulness, right? Now, when we as a country begin to give that up and parents no longer see themselves as the authority, they see themselves as a friend, well, then we live in a world where parents let the kids rule the home. 
This is no longer an authority structure. It's a partnership. And whatever the five-year-old wants, the five-year-old gets. Right? And th- this is kind of that what's happening to the family unit. Look at how confused. Look at how confused our families are today. I mean, for those of you that are in teaching, right? You know, you see these kids, these little rebels come into your classroom. They don't even, they don't need, even need to do any work. They don't need to do, they don't need to do that. They don't need to do what you say. Right? How does this, this go? This doesn't go well. We recognize there's a need for authority. And look, there's a need for authority in the church too. So here's an important principle that if you've never heard this before, you should take this down. It's really important. And it goes like this. All authority, really in the world, but especially in the church, all authority is delegated authority. All authority is delegated authority. Who is the ruler? Who's the, who, who is the ultimate authority in our lives? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our headship. He is the one that oversees all things. We are his body and we submit. We submit to, to his headship. That's what we do. But we have to remember that, that he has bestowed on other people authority as well. Right? He is for authority structures. And so God is the head, and, and whatever authority that one may have, including pastor, is given them to steward by God and by God alone. And that should produce humility. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles, we'll come back to that idea, and some prophets, and, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, okay, I want to point out to you that while there is this authority structure, and there are leaders that do certain things, and there are other people that do other things, that God sees humanity and his church with, with absolute equality. Right? In other words, whether or not you've just shown up to this church and this is like your first month of being a part of Midtown Baptist Temple or you are a pastor here, God sees you the same. You're of equal significance in his eyes. He holds you in equality. And regardless of what title you hold, when you get to heaven, you're held to the same exact standard and his love for you is equal in every way. But there are positions that, 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 that differ in the church, okay? Now, there's a system of equity. There's a system of equity in the church. And so whether you're the pastor or whether you're the greeter at the front door, whether you work in Kidstown, we all have our part. We all have a role. And in God's eyes, it's all equally significant. This is a critical, this is a critical perspective to have. But nonetheless, he's also given authority And that authority is responsible for caring for the souls of the flock. In the church, God has established a spiritual chain of command that starts with him, and then he delegates that authority out, in this case to apostles, in our case to pastors. Now, the word apostle just means sent one. Okay, so in Scripture, when we see the word apostle, we we have to recognize that that just means someone that's sent. In our world today, um, we would call that person a, a person that's a missionary. Now, you might be a missionary to your school, your workplace, or you might be a missionary to Vietnam. If you are going to the lost in order to seek and save them, you are a sent one. You are doing a work of apostleship. But in the first century, in the early church, there was also a title of apostle. Okay, There was also a position called apostle. It was an office. A person who was an apostle had to meet a couple of basic requirements, okay? So I'm doing a little teaching here, so don't let me lose you, okay? If you need to write some stuff down, write some stuff down. It's not bad to learn things, right? In Scripture, we know that an apostle, based on what Peter set forth in Acts chapter 1, when they were replacing Judas, right? They were replacing that position of apostle in their midst. We recognize that there are certain things in Scripture that were required of an apostle, An apostle had to be someone who walked with Christ during his earthly ministry. That's one of the qualifications. But he also needed to be an eyewitness of Jesus' baptism and an eyewitness of his resurrection. So those are requirements in order to be bestowed the office of apostle. But then beyond that, you had to be selected by God. Okay? That's a big deal. Now Paul and everyone that he ministered to knew he did not meet these qualifications. Right? I mean, 
Did, was Paul there at the baptism of Christ? No, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. Was Paul there at the resurrection? Most likely not. He, he, probably, he probably actually may have never even set eyes on Christ until Christ appeared to him on the road, of, uh, road to Damascus. But here's the deal. Everyone knew that Paul did not meet those qualifications and yet that he was an apostle. Everyone knew that, even the church in Corinth. It wasn't really debatable. 1 Corinthians 15.8 says this, And last of all, he was seen of me, meaning Jesus, as of one born out of due time. In other words, I was appointed this position of apostleship out of due time, out of the right season. I'm an exception. I know I'm an exception. For I am the least of the apostles. Let him not meet to be called an apostle. I don't even deserve, in my own eyes, I don't even deserve the title because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not, not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. So none of this was actually controversial in Corinth. Why? Because he spent like a year and a half with those people doing miracles, preaching, and proving out the fact that he was an apostle. None of this would have been a surprise. Everybody knew the story of the road to Damascus. Everybody knew about the Jerusalem council that ensured the fact that Paul was seen and perceived to be an apostle. The other apostles confirmed him an apostle. No, this wasn't really up for debate. So what was up for debate? What was the problem in Corinth? What was it these false teachers were saying? They were saying that he didn't deserve any authority over them. They were undermining his authority. Now Paul responds to that, and I think the way that he responds is really interesting. Look at verse 2. He's very simple in his stating here. If I be not an apostle unto others... Okay, those other people. There's some people who do not perceive me to be an apostle. If I'm not an apostle to them, that's cool. Yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, you are the evidence of my authority. I don't care what anyone else thinks. The seal and the proving of my apostleship and authority in your life is the fact that God gave you to me. That when I invested, when I preached the gospel, you responded. And when I offered to disciple you and to teach you and to train you and to grow you in the Lord, you came alongside me. I'm not concerned about what anyone else is saying about me. All I'm concerned is that you understand that my investment in you and the fruitfulness in your life is all the evidence that any of us need that God has given me to lead you in this life. That's, that's what he says. So here's our first key point. Spiritual growth is the evidence of spiritual authority in your life. Right? Are you growing? Are you growing in your faith? Has God stretched you? Has God made you to be fruitful? Are you learning things of God's word? See, all of those things are evidence of the fact that someone's investing in you. Because you don't just get there by accident. That's not, how, that's not how it works. That's not how God built the church, right? There are no rebels in the church. You don't get to just go it alone. God built it in such a way that people invest down. And so someone's investing in you. You should consider your life. You should consider your testimony. You should consider what God's doing in your life. That's the result of the fact that God is using someone by his grace to invest in you. So the question for us is, who are you the fruit of in ministry? You should be able to think of their names, right? You should be able to think of people. You should be able to see faces. Who are you the fruit of in ministry? Who has made the investment of God's word in your life? Who's doing that? Now, here's the deal. Here's the thing that we have to conclude is that acknowledging that means honoring that. Acknowledging that means honoring that. 
And then this produces other questions that we might ask ourselves when we look around and consider the authorities in our life. And we look at the options that exist outside of the body of Christ, maybe in our profession, our workplace, our families. We think about authority. We should ask ourselves, who are the types of people that we want to follow? Shouldn't we ask ourselves that? What kind of person should you be looking for to function as an authority or a leader in your life? What are you looking for? What do you want? Because here's the deal. Just like in the Garden of Eden, there is a war over authority. Today, just today, like today, in your life, just like in the Garden of Eden, just like Satan and the serpent and, and the, the God of creation were establishing themselves as authorities in Adam and Eve's life, there was a war for the heart and the mind of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve relented and chose ultimately to serve their flesh. That same war exists in your own life. There are dueling authorities. There are authorities that, that, that are at work in your life to usurp one another. Christ wants to be your king. Christ wants to be your king, but so does, so does Satan. And pastors and Bible study leaders and disciples want to invest in you and show you love and teach you and train you, but so does the world. So does your college campus, so do your your professors, so do your lost family members. They also want to train and teach you. There's a war over, there's a dueling authority in your life. And you've got to make a decision. What kind of people do you want to get behind? And this was true in Corinth. Their suspicion of Paul uh, being after their money had caused them to, to, to doubt the simplicity of his investment. And ultimately doubt the fact that he was actually their spiritual father, which is a real shame. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul told them, you remember this, for though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, ye have, ye have not many fathers. Right? In other words, he's distinguishing between the fact that there are lots of teachers in the world. There are lots of teachers in the church. There are many diff- there's, there's many podcasts and commentary books that you can read and listen to. There's lots of people who want to teach you. But how many fathers and mothers in the faith do you really have? And you get to decide who are your fathers and mothers. You ha- and you have to decide that kind of every day whether or not you're going to choose to honor the investment that people have made in you. you. You get to decide that. Now, as we move forward with the text, you're going to notice that in 13 verses, Paul asks 15 questions, okay, which is really exhausting. That's too much, man. So we're going to sift through these questions, all right? Now, these questions will present the church in Corinth with their responsibility, listen to me, to financially support the people that lead them. Okay, I'm warning you up front. That's what we're going to talk about. Now, in these questions, we will see him make a basic defense that he not only has a right to the benefits of his apostleship, but he also has the right to refuse it. Okay, and that's going to make more sense as we get there. All right, ready to keep moving? All right. Verse 1. Again, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Okay, what's he asking there? What's that that mean? He's saying, do I I not have the, the right to basic food and drink? Okay, now listen. I think most of us right there would be like, well, yeah, gosh. But what they're saying is that they're not willing to help sustain and take care of their apostle. 
So he's posing really basic questions. You're like, look, I mean, if, if your fruitfulness and your life is the evidence of my investment, could I, could I, maybe that would benefit me to a meal. Maybe that would benefit me to, to, to some water and some, and some milk that I might be able to sustain my life. Listen as the questions continue on. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles and, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Now, that could be a confusing question for those of you who don't know the historical context here or, or maybe confused by the, the, the English, but he's basically saying, do I not have the basic right to take a wife the way that other apostles do? And this is where we have evidence that Cephas, who is Peter, the apostle Peter, actually was married and the Catholic Church just blew up. <laughs> okay? But the papal authority is based heavily on this idea that Peter was, was not married, right? So, so the point is that, that Paul's making is Peter has a wife. If I chose to have a wife, if I, chose, if I chose to get married, do I not have the right to provide for my family? Paul's arguing that it should be reasonable for the church to provide for the families of, of Peter and the other qualified ministers who've been making an investment in them for a very long time. Now, Paul doesn't have the burden of a wife. He didn't, he didn't, have, he didn't have a family. He didn't have those people to support. But look, does the investment of the ministers in your life qualify them for some financial support is the question. Now, look at verse 6. Are I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Okay, so what he's saying is, do Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from, from the labor of secular work in order to focus on the labor of the spiritual work at hand? Now, we know, we know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul was, before he got saved, trained to be a tent maker, which was a profession that we, there might be tent makers, I, I suppose, Certain tribal societies, maybe they're still tent makers. But Paul was a tent maker, and that's how he would make money. That's how he would earn a living. And we know from Paul's testimony that he continued to make tents in order to earn a wage so that he could support himself to do the work of the ministry. He was so devoted to investing in other people that he continued to work and pay the, and pay the bills and do what he needed to do but all of his extra time and energy was given to the work of the ministry. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven nine 9 about this. And when I was present with you, speaking about Corinth, right? This is his second letter to the church in Corinth. And he's asking them to go back in time and remember the time that he spent with them. And he says, and when I was present with you and wanted, in other words, when I needed food, when I needed sustenance, when, there, sustenance, when there's things that I needed to provide for my own life, I was, I was chargeable to no man. I took no money from anybody. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. <laughs> so like if there was anything that I needed uh, when I was investing in you, that was actually another church that provided for me because you guys really, you weren't willing. And so, I, you know, I, I labored and I was supplied by other people. And in all things, I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you. And so will I keep myself. So Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't charging that they needed to do anything. He just continued to work hard and he got funding wherever he could find it. He was okay with that. So the, so the, the whole time that he was ministering in the church in Corinth, they didn't compensate him or support him at all. And that's cool. He met his needs another way. So why does Paul have to point all this out? To make them feel like doo-doo? <laughs> to make them feel bad about themselves? Is that what he's doing here? He's concerned that the church was becoming self-centered. That was his concern. That the false teachers caused them to, pr to protect their bank accounts, to protect their activities, to protect their personal goals. And their defensive posture had caused them to devalue the investment that their spiritual fathers and mothers had made in them. And we're in danger of that too. 
Okay, we're not talking about money here. We're talking about a principle. That the world has caused us to be so concerned with our own lives, to be so self-centered in the way that we think about, about our lives and how we design the story of our lives, that it causes us to turn our eyes away from the people that have invested in us and to devalue the work of the fathers and mothers that we have. And this neglectful thinking is the same reason why our faith is so lukewarm, because we live in an age that promotes a materialistic spirit and resists spiritual authority. So here's the next key point. Submitting to spiritual authorities protects us from selfishness. It does. Submitting to spiritual authorities protects us from selfishness. See, the responsibility of the pastor, the Bible study leader, the disciple maker, is to invest in you so that your faith will increase and you will become spiritually viable, spiritually faithful. That's their responsibility. But if you come to the table with suspicion or distrust, or you're so busy working at protecting what you might lose along the way, which you will lose stuff. Like you're gonna lose your life. You're gonna, you're gonna lose a lot of things following Christ. That's just part of the work. If you're so concerned with protecting that, then you're gonna miss out on all of God's blessings for you. So Paul's going to address the issue of their failure to support him in the work of the mission. Now I wanna point out to you the fact this, while we're here, I want to point out something very important. That, so this passage is very difficult as a pastor to preach to you. And the reason is because a pastor just can't win when preaching something like this. No matter what I say, no matter what I do, at any given time, people are going to judge me and my family based on the way that I dress, based on what kind of car I drive. Now, I dress homeless, so that helps me out. People are like, nah, he must be broke. <laughs> but they're going to judge the pastor based on what kind of car he drives, what kind of house he lives in. There's just no way around it. People, because of suspicion in our world, just like in the church of Corinth, I'm going to fall prey to people's judgment. That's okay. I dealt with that a long time ago. I'm cool with that. But... But here's the deal. I want to make this very, very plain to you. And so I'm going to speak from my heart for a second. MBT is a, is a church that runs on the support of volunteer ministers. We believe that every member should be a minister. In other words, every member of our church is, is equally vested in what's happening here as the pastors in our church. And so the mission and the purpose that God has given us, it transcends position, whether you're on staff or not. It transcends all that. And I want to say to you, as your pastor, that the servant's heart of the people in this room is phenomenal to me. And I believe as a whole, not, every, not everyone's on board yet, that's cool. But as a whole, the people in this room have given their lives and are learning to give their lives to this work. Now, I can say the exact same thing for our pastoral team. The majority of our pastors, as you may know, are bivocational. So the, so the guys that we call pastor in this church, most of them have full-time jobs in the secular world. And they do the work, they do the work of ministry in their free time. And their jobs, their jobs are only just to support the fact that they want to minister. And so, you know, Will Mata sells buses all day. And Jeff Grasher is a school teacher. And Chris Best is still doing work as a doctor, despite the fact that he said he's quitting. He's still like, I don't get it. He's still like at, working at the hospital every week. And our, and our pastors, they're, they, they're so bought in, they're so sold out, that they're cool with working a job. Now, for a long time, I actually despised the idea. I, I, I'll, I'll say it this way. 
I didn't even know it was an option as a pastor in this church to be full-time. I didn't even know it was, like in my mind, Sam is the full-time pastor. He's the only one on the, on the staff. And that's just how it's going to be. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire as a school teacher. I'm cool with that. Like I was, and then even the idea, the concept of being on staff, I kind of despised it. Because I knew that it would take me off the, the mission field. I knew that in some ways I was going to lose something in terms of my ministry, at least I'm at West. And so I despised the idea, like, even if it was an option, I wouldn't want, ever want it. And guys, I have to say, God, God had to change my heart on that. And it, I had to actually die to my pride to even be willing to come on staff. Um. It was a very hard decision. It had to be of the Spirit. There was a point at, at, at which in my life, I could no longer keep track of y'all and continue teaching every day. You know, and I couldn't go home and grade homework assignments and spend my evenings doing that and also do the counseling and the discipling. I couldn't do it anymore, and Sam saw it, and so things changed. But I want to tell you this. The Spirit of this church is every member a minister. And I want to go even further, and I want to tell you, and our pastors would amen this, we don't need anything from you. We don't need anything from you. The only thing we need from you is for you to follow Christ. That's it. That's the only thing we need. It, you know, if I had to go back to teaching next week to put food on the table, I'd do it. I have no problem with that. The only thing I desire in this life is to see my children, meaning you, walk in faith. But if we're going to look at this text honestly... We have to understand that it's our responsibilities as members, my responsibility included, members of this local church, to earnestly consider if we see and understand our leaders and authorities the way that God does. So let's continue looking at the passage and let's see what it has to say. We don't have a whole lot of time here. So he shares several examples here in the secular world of how one's service, when it's provided, they tend to reap a reward. When you, right, when you work at McDonald's and you make cheeseburgers for other people's benefit, you actually get a check at the end of the day, right? Maybe not the biggest check. I worked at McDonald's. My check was garbage. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. Take what you can get. But, but that's the way the world works. Verse 7, who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? In other words, what Roman army isn't paid for doing the work that they do. They're provided for. So why not leaders of God's army? And then he goes on and says, who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Paul says that a man that works in a vineyard, a farmer, farmer is entitled to eat of the vine. So why not the farmers in the Lord's vineyard? Fair question, huh? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Paul says that the shepherd that feeds a flock is naturally inclined to drink of the flock's milk. So why not the shepherd of God, shepherds of God's flock? So if it's right for those who strive in this world to receive sustenance from the fruit of their physical labor, is it not right for those who strive in the mission to receive some sustenance from the fruit of their spiritual labor? Verse 8. Say are these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should partake of this hope. So he's making reference here to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 where God provides the nation of Israel with this principle that when you are going to tread out the harvest in order to prepare it for the next season, it's the very end of the harvest, right? 
and you're out there with your ox and you're treading out the ground, preparing it for next season, you do not muzzle the ox. Why? Because they need an opportunity to eat and to glean from the leftovers of the harvest. Why refuse? When that ox has, has labored with you through the spring and the summer, and they've been right out there in the field with you in the hot of the day, and they're doing the work right with you, why wouldn't you give them the opportunity to partake of the harvest as well? It's the right thing to do. God careth for the animals. And listen to me. It's not just that. So, so Paul's saying, it's, I'm like the ox. Like, I don't need your first fruits. Just leave something behind, maybe. And that's all he's saying. But furthermore, the principle also says, if we look at it honestly, that when the ox takes of that fruit, that he's fattening himself up for lean times. In other, in other words, when stuff gets hard, that you want to make sure that that ox is fat because he's got to serve you again. He's got to serve you again next spring. His survival is important to your work. And so Paul's point is, isn't your investment in me worth it knowing that I continue to pour into your lives? I, can, I, I, can t- I continue to bear fruit in your midst. Isn't your support important? So verse 11, if, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Key point. Our generous care for those in leadership is a benefit to us all. Okay? It's a benefit to us all. Just like the, bar, the farmer benefits from a healthy ox, the congregation of God benefits from having leaders who are honored and submitted to. We all gain from that. So here, here's really, I mean, if there's a guiding thing that you need to understand is that it's biblical to invest in those who invest in you. It, it's biblical to invest in those that invest in you. Paul teaches a young pastor named Timothy this exact principle. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, he says to him, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So Paul's not asking for the highest seat at the banquet. He isn't, he isn't asking for a watch or a new car. He's just simply pointing out to them that it's biblically right to provide for those who invest in you, to honor them, to submit to them. It's our responsibility as believers to honor the work and investment that those leaders that have, that have bled out, I mean, metaphorically speaking, on our behalf, that we would honor them and we would serve them Serve, you know, serve them and be submitted because of their late nights. Because their time away from their family. All because that we, you know, that we might benefit spiritually. So here's some hard things to consider. You ready? Let's, let's talk real here for a second as we close out. Let's do real talk. Men like Jeff Grasher don't need to be on staff to serve the Lord. But the question is, would the church benefit from his full-time help here? Men like Andrew Ong, they don't need your support to go to Vietnam. They're going anyway. But would the work benefit from our contribution? Would the work in Vietnam benefit from our contribution? See, men like Sam Miles, they don't minister because you give. They minister because of who they are. But isn't it right that we put food on the miles table? See, the honest truth is that all of us should take Paul's example And we should recognize, we should recognize that it's our responsibility to honor those who honor us with their lives. 
Now, in closing, Paul says this crazy thing about not wanting anything. Like, just forget it. <laughs> He's like, tells them all this stuff. Like, here's all the biblical principles, but listen, just forget it. Verse 12, nevertheless, we have not used this power. We've not used this authority. Like the guy that we talked about at the beginning, he wants to watch. He's using his authority to get something, right? Paul says, nevertheless, we have, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of these things of the temple? And they that... They that which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So at the end of the day, he's saying, look, despite the fact that the church should probably be responsible for taking care of those that take care of them, at the end of the day, I live, I live by the gospel. Well, what does that even mean? It means just that. He'll live or he'll die by the gospel. If he has one less meal and it means that he hasn't hindered the work, that's what he's doing. See, see, Paul has just modeled for us what it looks like to give up liberties, to give up the things that we think that we deserve, to give up our passions or our, our preferences, to give those things up in order to serve and to edify and to prefer others over himself. Here's the key point. A true minister only ministers for one reason. They're obsessed with the gospel. That's it. You don't get into this for any other reason, do you? I mean, honestly, like, let's talk about it in, in terms of where you're at. You don't get into Christianity and you don't become a disciple of Jesus Christ because it's, it's supposed to pay out. <laughs> it's going to ensure that you're like on the right professional trajectory. That's not why you get into this. In fact, we have a class called Cost of Discipleship because we want your sorry butt to know that you're going to lose a lot of stuff. There's a cost involved here. The reward's on the other side, Right? In this life, it's going to cost you something. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So listen to me. A true minister only ministers for one reason, and that's because they're obsessed with the gospel, because they live it and they breathe it, and it's their sustenance, and no one needs to give them anything, and they don't need to be affirmed by anyone. Their cause is Christ. Verse 15 says, but I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. It's kind of a strange sermon. Yeah? Sorry about that. Um, there's a lot of principles for us to gain from this, though. And, uh, and so I want, you, I want to remind you that your pastors don't need anything uh, from you except for you to serve the Lord with everything you have. You've got to work between you and the Holy Spirit out what it means for you to honor those that you're submitted to. So that's between you and the Lord. But here's the deal. Here's the invitation. If, if, if the worship team is, well, is ready, David, if you're ready. Here's the invitation for you. If you know that you're distracted by, by things of the world and it's kept you, it's kept you from focusing on the mission in any level, whether it be in terms of how you see the authorities in your life and the people that are investing in you, or it just means that you're distracted from doing the work of the mission yourself. Maybe you're not in that camp every member a minister. Maybe you can't say that about yourself. It's time for you to repent of that because yes, it's gonna cost you something to follow Christ. It's gonna cost you something. But listen, ultimately, you're going to gain everything. Because to learn how to addict yourself to the gospel and to the ministry is the greatest thing. You know, I'm old enough now where I've tasted, it, I've tasted of things of the world and I've tasted of things of the Spirit. And I'll tell you, there's no paycheck 
okay? There's no achievement. There's no pat on the back that I've gotten in the world that, that wasn't 10 times overshadowed by what I receive in a quiet moment with God knowing that I've obeyed him. So what I'm asking is that you would consider obeying the Lord today. And if there are things of this world that have blinded you, maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's how busy you are. Lay that down. Lay that down right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the only one worthy of our service. You are the only one. And so, God, we recognize that Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again to deliver us from our sin. And that entitles you to our worship and it entitles you to our family and it entitles you to our work, entitles you to our bank account, entitles you to to change our perceptions of the church and those who serve in the church. You are entitled to it. We, We need to obey you. You are the one. You are the one. So teach us right now in the humility of our hearts as we're, as we're low before you. Teach us what it means to give up on us that we might receive what you're doing, that we might be partakers of the mission. You deserve it. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, For service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.